So John 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Now, uh, we kind of start a new chapter today, and we also kind of start a new subject. And that subject is, is prayer. Um, often throughout the Gospels, you'll see passages like this in Luke 5.16, where you'll, you'll see something like Luke here says, but he, talking about Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So you hear this in the Gospels over and over and over again, that Jesus would, would, would go off into the wilderness, go up onto the mountain, go out into the desolate place, and, and He would pray. And so, and, and the fact is, if you ever wondered what He prayed about and what was said during those prayers, um, you know, what we know is that He prayed a lot, but really... You, you really only see little things like this. It tells us he prays, but it never really tells us what he prayed about. And so we really, through the Gospels, we learn very little about what Jesus said to the Father uh, when he prayed. But in today's passage, it's different. In today's passage in John 17, John records an actual prayer of Jesus that takes up the whole chapter. So again, we, he's prayed for going on for years now, right? But we never get any insight into what was said. But in today's chapter, John 17, John records an entire prayer of Jesus, what Jesus says to the Father. And so as we come to this, I want to point out three things. First of all, this, this passage of Scripture that we're about to cover over the next few weeks really has no match anywhere else in the Bible. You won't find anything like this in Matthew Mark or Luke. You won't find anything like this uh, anywhere else in the Bible. In a sense, uh, John kind of pulls back the veil and lets us see, kind of lets us into a private conversation between the Son and the Father, between Jesus and God. And so we need to really uh, comprehend how important these words are. I mean, this, like I said, you won't find this anywhere else in the Bible. And so this is a very special passage of scripture and so I think we need to pay uh, special attention to it. The second thing to point out before we get into it is that this is a transitional chapter. Um, it really marks the end of his earthly ministry and the, and the beginning of his mediator's ministry, right? You know, the, the Bible says that today Jesus is, the, is at the right hand of God and what's he doing? What's he doing? What's it say? He's interceding. He's praying for us today. This is really where it starts. This is kind of a transition away from his earthly ministry and to his intercession uh, ministry. And I also want you to notice the mindset of Jesus. As he prays this prayer, uh, he knows he's probably at this point probably in the garden already. Uh, he knows that they're going to be coming in a little while to get him. He knows that tomorrow he's going to be tortured. He's going to be hanging on a cross. He knows this is coming. He's not like us where we don't know he knows exactly. But even at this point, you'll notice he's looking beyond the suffering to what's coming. Right? And there's a, in other words, he's modeling what he's told the disciples over and over and over again. I mean, how many times has he uh, told the disciples, look, it's going to hurt for a little while, but on the other side, it's all going to be worth it. Remember the illustration last week that he gave about the woman having the baby and how that you have pain and sorrow for a little while, 
but after that comes joy and you forget all about that. See, that's what his, the principle is that you and I are to look past the pain, look past the suffering, and, and look to the glory that awaits us. And, and Jesus is perfectly illustrating that uh, in this um, prayer. He's looking to the cross, not with, not with fear, uh, not with sorrow, but he's looking with hope. Uh, Hebrews 12 2 puts it this way, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised its shame, and sat down at the right hand uh, of the throne of, of God. You and I are to do the same. Philippians 2, 5 and 8 says it this way, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Right? I mean, we have to learn to look past the sorrow, look past the suffering uh, to what's coming. And Romans eight eighteen puts it this way, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. So, again, just three things to be aware of as we move into this chapter. Now, the chapter is really broken up into three parts. The first five verses, Jesus is going to pray for himself. Um, the second uh, part of it is verses 6 through 19. He's going to pray for the apostles, for the eleven. And then in the last part of it, Jesus is going to pray for you and I, okay, in verses uh, 20 through 26. So today, we'll look at the first part, and then we'll get started on the second part, and then we'll probably take another week or two to, uh, to finish it up. So let's start where Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. Let's read. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So let's kind of go through this. There are so many incredible principles in this, but one of them jumps out at us right from the beginning. I want you to notice that, remember we started back in chapter 13 with the foot washing. Everybody remember that? Jesus goes in the upper room, he, he, he has the Last Supper, he institutes the Lord's Supper, he washes their feet. And then in chapters 14, 15, and 16, what's he been doing? He's been just pouring truth into them, hasn't he? He's been saying, you know, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. My peace I give to you. My joy I give unto you. He's just been pouring truth after truth after truth into them for three chapters. And he went on and on to make sure they got it. Yet when all that is said and done, look what it says. When Jesus had spoken those words, all the words that he's spoken, all that truth, he lifted up his eyes. What's he doing? He's He's praying. He stopped, he's saying, Father, I've made all these promises, I've conveyed all this truth, but it's your power that's going to make it happen, right? Now that, that is a, by the way, what principle is there for us? Somebody tell me, Jesus spends hours pouring in truth to the disciples, and then when it was all said and done, after he's spoken all those words, he prays and says, Lord, Father, I've done all you've asked me to do, now it's up to you. What, what principle is there for us? Imitation in what way? Say again. Praying to him. Okay. Pray. That's where all our help comes from. Okay. That's where all our help comes from. 
How about is what principle is there for us as parents? That's how we teach our kids. Okay. Pray for them. This is what I'm looking for. See, after all we have done to promote comfort, after all we've done to promote holiness, after all we do to teach somebody, to instruct somebody, to counsel somebody, when it's all said and done, you better pray. Okay? Because all the truth without the power of God accomplishes what? Nothing. Nothing. It's just words on a page. Okay? See, John Calvin put it this way, doctrine has no power unless efficacy is imparted to it from above. That word efficacy means effectiveness. He's saying these these words on this page have no power unless it's imparted from God above. The Holy Spirit has to do something in somebody's life for these things to become real. So when we've taught, when we've counseled, when we've shared spiritual truth, we always take it to prayer and we commend the hearers to the Father's care and the power of the Spirit's instruction because when you've done it all, you've done nothing unless the Holy Spirit energizes it. Okay, And there's a real principle for us there, not only as teachers, but as parents and as grandparents. Um, see, it doesn't matter whether you're a Bible study teacher or a parent. It's easy to fall into this trap where you think all I've got to do is teach the Word, teach the Word, teach the Word, teach the Word, right? You just think, I'll just teach the Word and that's enough. But that's not all, that's never enough. Ministry is always, a two, ministry is twofold. You teach and you pray, okay? By the way, we see this in Acts 6. Remember when the church starts growing and the disciples are and they're having all these people come, they're having these issues, widows are needing to be taken care of and all these things, and, and they come to the disciples, and they say, hey, we got these widows over here that, that need taken care of, they don't, have, they don't have any food. And the disciples are like, look, man, we, we can't be waiting on tables. That's basically what they said. We can't be waiting on tables. So he says this, Peter says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint over this business. These are your deacons. He says, but we, talking about the apostles, we will give ourselves continually to two things. What are they? To prayer and to teaching of the Word. It always goes together. You can't just teach and think that's enough. You teach, but then you say, you do exactly what Jesus does. Father, I've taught them all I can teach them. It's up to you. Energize them. Empower them. Open their blind eyes. Ministry is always a twofold. Those two have to go together. We, we can not only impart the truth, we've got to pray to God to energize it in the fertile soul of the individual. That was true for Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. Father, I've, done, I've told them everything you told me to tell them. Now it's up to you. You empower them. You take care of them. You energize them. You keep them. And we'll actually see that uh, a little bit long, later as we, as we see where he prays for the disciples. So let's see what Jesus says, continuing in verse 1. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now right there, we could just teach a whole... A lot of these things, we could just stop and teach an entire lesson on them, but I'm trying to get through this. Um, In that little phrase is just loads and loads and loads of truth. Um, And it could produce multiple sermons. And why? Because that statement acknowledges that God is sovereign over history. That statement acknowledges that God is sovereign over history. 
Listen, history, it, what's going on is no accident. God is not, some people think that, that God is like a watchmaker who created the world and kind of winded it up and he just sits back with his arms crossed and he just watches what happens. Uh, that's not true at all. God is actively involved in, in history. It's planned and mapped out and charted by a sovereign God who runs the universe. He knew exactly what would happen all the way up to bring Jesus to this very hour. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. From the Egyptian captivity to Moses and the Exodus and the establishment of the law. From David and Solomon and the building of the temple down throughout the centuries where he dealt through the judges and he dealt through the prophets and the kings. Then he goes silent for 400 years until one day this little baby is born who only lives 33 years to this very hour that Jesus is talking about, which is the hour of his death, the hour that Jesus bears the sins of men. Um, this hour that Jesus is talking about is going to blot out the curse and reconcile men to God. It's the hour that's going to destroy the power of sin, Satan, and death. It's going to be the hour that will unveil the mystery of the kingdom of Christ. Jesus said back in John 12, 27, he says, for this purpose, for this purpose, which was to die, I came to this hour. This is the hour that he was born for. And it's all been planned, it's all been orchestrated by a sovereign God. So Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now, to men, this hour, what's about to happen um, in the next few hours is going to be shame, right? It was shameful to be executed. It was shameful. Uh, in fact, the Old Testament says, cursed is the man who is hung on a tree. It is a shameful thing to die like that. But to Christ, watch what he says. Glorify your son. I'm going to be glorified by hanging on the cross. Um, and, and in fact, watch what he says. Glorify your son so that the son may what? Glorify you. Even here, he, Jesus is not being selfish, by the way. Even as he's praying and saying, glorify me, it's all about so that he can glorify the Father. It's never about him. It was never about him on this earth. Even here, he didn't have himself in view. He had the Father's glory in view. Hebrews 1.3 said it this way, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, if Jesus is glorified, the Father's glorified. And in fact, there can't be anything that glorifies the Son that doesn't glorify the Father. You can't believe in the Father and not believe in the Son. They, they're a package, right? You glorify one, the other gets the glory. You believe in one, you have to believe in the other. You can't separate them. Okay? They, they go together. Now, Jesus is going to be glorified in the cross. Now, this is an odd thing, right? When you think about it, it seems strange in some ways that Christ would be glorified through suffering. Okay? So here's the question that I have. How does the cross glorify Christ? How to think about it for a second. How does the cross glorify Christ? Somebody tell me. First of all, let me ask you this. What does it mean to, to glorify God? It means to be lifted up, to, to praise Him, to honor Him for His attributes, right? So how does the cross this instrument of suffering, this instrument of execution, how does that glorify God? How does it glorify the Son? Total submission. Huh? Total submission. 
Okay? It, it shows his obedience. Okay? What else? Followed God's will to the letter. Okay? Again, followed God's obedience, submission, followed God's will to the letter. That's one way. said this is the way that he has to die. What she's saying is that could Jesus have died any other way? Right? Could he have just made him sick and died? Well, we know it's planned out, right? It was prophesied in Isaiah. It was prophesied in the Psalms. It's prophesied. I mean, it was always, he had to die that way. Now, again, a lot of it had to do with a lot of different things. The old temple, the shedding of blood, a lot of things went on, right? So we don't yeah, we don't know all the answers. We know there had to be a sacrifice. But how does that glorify Him? So we talked about obedience. We talked about submission. Okay, triumph over death. Well, also, it was saying that He did exactly what He said. Okay. Right, here's, here's the thing. To glorify God or to glorify Christ means to render what is due because of the greatness of their attributes, Right? Listen, when we praise God, I don't praise God because I have to. I look at Him and I think, man, he, He's just the greatest thing I've ever seen. His attributes, deserve, they make you want to praise Him, right? Um, this is why the cross and suffering brought glory to Jesus. Because in a way that nothing else could, it brought recognition to His greatness. In fact, when you look at the, the cross puts God on display like nothing else can. Let me give you an example. It's at the cross that you see His love, isn't it? Where, how better do you display His love? What greater love has a man than to give his life for one of somebody else? You see, the cross, is He displays His love in a way He couldn't have done it any other way. He willingly went to die. He didn't just get sick. He didn't just have a heart attack or something like that. No, he willingly, a healthy young man, willingly went to die. That shows his love. It's at the cross you see his grace. It's at the cross that you see his mercy. It's there. Somebody mentioned you see his power, right? Over sin and death. By the way, it's there you see his righteousness because he cannot just overlook our sin, right? That's why he went to the cross, to pay our sin debt. So you see his righteousness. It's there you see His holiness. Remember, uh, He says, Jesus says, for, for just a few seconds or minutes, the Father has to turn His back on Jesus when He bears our sins. That's why Jesus says, My Lord, why have you forsaken me? Um, like the Lord gave me the other night, Colossians 2.13, when you are dead in your sins and you're a circumstance of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the written code with regulation that was against us. And stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities that made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Yeah. So he forgave us. I mean, on the cross, we see his forgiveness. On the cro I mean, it's on the cross. All of his attributes are put on display, right? It's there you see, by the way, it's there you see his goodness. When he, all of that happens, he says, Father, what does he say? Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. I mean... Who does that? 
God does that. That I mean, it, there's something about the cross that displays the attributes of God in a way that nothing else can. It glorifies Him. It lifts Him up. Um, and, and so that's, a, that's an amazing thing to me. Now, let's get back to the prayer. In His prayer... Jesus is going to mention three specific ways that the Father is going to glorify Him. Remember what He says, Father, glorify, in this, uh, glorify me in this hour so I can bring glory to You. He's going to mention three ways. The first one is this, through the cross, He provides eternal life. Uh, verses 2 through 3 says this, Since you have given Him, talking about the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Someday, all of us who believe in Jesus Christ are going to receive eternal life to its fullness. That is coming. But even though we've yet to die, we are already experiencing eternal life in the, in the true definition. Because Jesus says this is eternal life, not that you live forever. Right? Notice eternal life to Jesus doesn't mean, oh, you're going to live together. By the way, the devil's going to live forever. The damned in hell are going to live forever. That's not eternal life. That's not what he's talking about. He says eternal life is this, that you know God. That's life. You see, what he's doing, he's saying eternal life isn't just existing forever. According to Christ, eternal life is not about quantity, but about quality. Right? We talk about some people who get near the end of their life and we talk about quality of life because they're in a bed, they're living, they're existing, but they're hooked up to tubes, they don't know where they are. And, and what do we say sometimes? They'd be better off gone, wouldn't they? Because they have... Life isn't just existing forever. Life is about the quality, what we're doing. And Jesus says life is knowing God. That's eternal life. Um, and watch this. Who does he give this life to? He gives eternal life to who? Read that with me. To all that the Father has given him. He says, Father, all you gave me, I gave eternal life to them. Now, we've heard that before, haven't we? Go back to John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Okay? Um, listen, our sovereign God predetermined before time began that he would save a group of human beings. And by the way, the reason that you're saved today is not primarily because of you. The reason you're saved today primarily is that you and I have been given to the Son as love gifts. The Father loves the Son so much, He said, I, I see some people out there, I'm going to save them, and I'm going to give them to my Son. That's, that's what Jesus has been saying over and over. I'm, I gave eternal life to the ones you gave to me. I'm giving eternal life. I mean, that's a, guys, that is an amazing thing. Listen to the Scripture, Romans 8, 29. For those He foreknew, okay, He also predestined, to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, God wants a people who will be like Jesus. He wants a redeemed humanity who can reflect the character and the nature of His Son, to be as much like Jesus as is supernaturally possible. That's the reality. 
He chose a group of people and He gave that group of people to His Son. Okay? Who will love Him and honor Him and worship Him to the extent that they, their lives will actually become like Him. That's how much the Father thinks of the Son. That's how much the Father loves the Son. That He would do that for us first and foremost to be love gifts to Jesus. Secondly, Jesus says the Father will glorify Him in another way. Through the cross, He finished the work of obedience. I think uh, somebody brought that up. Jesus said in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus, as we all know, He lived 33 years on this earth. And from the time He drew His first breath out of His mother's womb until the moment that He died on the cross, He never sinned. He never had an evil thought. He never spoke an evil word. Somebody said it a while ago. All the way to the end, he was submissive to the Father. He did exactly what the Father asked him to do, even when it meant that he had to die. And by the way, he did what our father Adam could not do. He lived a perfect life. See, it was imperative, and we've talked about this before in our Roman study. Jesus had it was Jesus came for two things. Number one, he came to die, right? Number two, he came to live a perfect life. He came to do two things, right? Because on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he committed your sins when he didn't. And now God turns around you and treats you as though you lived his perfect life, even though you didn't. Okay? That is what's called the doctrine of imputation or the doctrine of of substitutionary atonement. It comes out of 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that's the death, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's His perfect life. Right? We've talked about that again and again. He took our sin and He gave us His perfect life. So when God looks at us, the Father looks at us, he, he looks at us just like we've lived an, a perfect life and never sinned. That's, the, that's a pretty good exchange, isn't it? Here, you take my sin, give me your perfection. That's exactly the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Number three, finally through the cross, He would return to the Father. Verse five, And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Jesus is really close to dying soon. The humiliation is going to... And by the way, don't think for a second that just coming to this earth, taking on the form of a man, it wasn't humiliating. Right? He's God. It's humiliating to be born a little baby and somebody's got to change your diaper. That's humiliating for Him. He endured it for 33 years, the humiliation of being a man. And He's going to endure the humiliation of the cross, but it is almost over. In just a little while, the redemption will be accomplished, the obedience complete, salvation provided, the devil defeated, sin destroyed, and eternal life secured. And now, it's time for Him to go back to the Father. And Jesus understands that in the cross is the path back. And He don't ask for any more glory than He already had. He's just ready to go home. Okay? Now, Let's turn. Now Jesus is going to turn and He's going to begin to pray for His disciples. Let's look at verse 6. He says, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. 
Now here he is not referring to all the people that will eventually believe. He's not referring here to you and I. And we know this because later on in verse 20, he's going to say this. He said, I don't ask for these only, talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay? That's us. So in this first section here, he's praying specifically for those disciples. Later, in verse 20, he will turn and begin to pray for you and I. Okay? But right now, he's praying for them. Now watch what he says. I have manifested your name to them. Now, I want you to understand something. The disciples were good Jews, weren't they? They already knew God's name. They knew that God's name was I am who I am. Right? Jehovah, Yahweh, right? They already knew that. That's not what Jesus is saying, okay? The, in, the, in the Old Testament, and we don't, we've kind of lost this in our culture, but in the Old Testament, somebody's name meant something, right? Your name meant something, right? I didn't just name you because, oh, my daddy's name was Bob, I'll name you Bob. They, they would put names on children and expect children to live up to that name, right? I mean, if your name meant courageous, you better be brave, right? So, so names meant something. So the idea of God's name, I am who I am, is the summation of all His attributes. For, for God, His name isn't just a way to distinguish Him from other gods. It's, it's His whole nature. It's His whole character, right? So, and we see this in the Bible. By the way, Psalms 9.10, those who know your name put their trust in you. What does that mean? Knowing your name means what? I know you. I know your character. I know who you are. Therefore, I trust you. Uh, Psalms 27, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in what? The name of the Lord. You're saying we trust in His character. We trust in Him, who He is. Uh, knowing His name means knowing His character, knowing Him intimately. So when Jesus says to the, to, to the Father, I have declared or made known your name to them, He's saying that I've come to them and I've shown them who you are more clearly or in a way that they had never known it uh, before. And how did He do that? How did, how did Jesus show them who the Father was? He modeled it. It was Him, right? Look what He said in verse 14, 7. He said, if you've known Me, you've known the Father. He told Philip, you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So one of the things that Jesus came to do for these disciples was to show them who God really was. Not just what they had read, not just what they had heard, but He came to model it uh, for them. So the character of God has been manifested or made known to the disciples in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld Him and His glory, full of grace and, and truth. Now back then, the name of God was so sacred to the Jews that they would not speak it. In fact, the name Jehovah or Yahweh is actually, it's, a, it's not really the name of God. They actually took out all the vowels and kind of scrunched it up. And it was a way to refer to God without saying His name. They wouldn't say His name. In fact, only one day of the year on the Day of Atonement when the, whole, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, on that day the high priest would speak His name. But regular Jews, you did not speak the name of God. By the way, that continues today. There's a, there's a website I grabbed out there that I go to sometimes. It's called jewishworldreview.com. It's just a place where they do 
uh, news and stuff. And if you ever read any of their articles, now this is, I mean, this is how crazy this is, right? If they ever write the word God, they'll take out the O. They won't write the name God. Even in, they won't write it. They'll pay G-D. And that's, I mean, that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, we all know what they're saying. They know what they're saying. But even today, there's this, see, there's this sense to them, the Jews, that God is distance, that, that He's distant, that He's transcendent, that He's far away, that He's given us His Word, but He's not really close to us. His, his name was not for ordinary men to speak. But Jesus comes and He says, no, guys, it's not like that at all. He loves you. He's right here. I've come to show you uh, who He is. Jesus comes and, and the name of God, He wants you to know that God is no longer remote or distant or fearful. Galatians 4, 6, Paul says this, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of, of His Son into our hearts so that we can now cry, Abba, Father. So we can call Him Daddy. Basically is what that means in the Greek. He's not way far away. He's your Father. Okay, And you can come and talk to Him. So Jesus showed us who he really was. He showed us his nature, and he brought us into a new intimacy so that the humblest and weakest Christian can speak the sacred name of God without fear. So let's read on. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And he says it again. Watch this. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And you know, I want you to understand what he's saying there. Don't miss it. Before I came to this earth, these men were already whose? They were yours. Yours they were, and now you gave them to me. And there again is a reference to, to the fact that every saved person is a chosen child of God. Every saved person, their treasures given to the Son to show the Father's love to the Son. Let's look at that phrase for a second in other scriptures. Let's look at John 10, 25 to 28. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, remember? And he says, he answers them, I told you these words and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to who I am. And watch what he says. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. In other words, you don't believe because you don't belong to the Father. We covered that back then, right? He doesn't say... Uh, you don't belong to the Father because you don't believe. He says you don't believe because you haven't been given. You, 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 you're not one of His, right? My sheep, the ones that belong to the Father, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen. We were chosen to be given to the Son when He came, right? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to be adopted. He said, you, 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 you're going to be adopted into the family before the foundation of the world. Now that is a staggering thing. That is an absolutely staggering thing. That the Father chose me. Me and you, right? Before the world began to give to the Son as an expression of His love. And that is true of every single Christian. Every Christian 
is that love gift given to the Son, received by the Son, kept by the Son, and will be raised by the Son. Okay? goes on, John 17, 6. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and now they've done what? They have kept your word. There again, the mark, we've said it over and over again, the mark of a true Christian is always what? Obedience. You keep the word. If you really believe, if you're really saved, you keep the word. It's not about, by the way, it's not about perfection. We all make mistakes. But it's about the direction of your life. Your practice is to, is to keep the word. As Jesus said in John 8.31, he said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, if you keep my word, then you are truly my disciples and not false believers. Jesus goes on, verse 7 and through 8, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And now they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. This is the summary. Jesus saying, I did what you asked me to do. I gave them the words that you gave me, and they've received them. Now they know. Now they believe. My ministry here um, is over. Now look at verse 9. Now, now look at verse 9. I am praying for them. Who's he praying for? For the disciples. For the disciples. I am not praying for the world. I am, now again, this why, you see why this, this chapter is so important? Jesus prays all the time, but for one chapter, we get to pull the veil back and see how he prays. And he says it. I am praying for them, these believers. I am not praying for the world. Isn't that what he said? Am I making it up? I am not praying for the world. I am praying for who? What does it say? For those you have what? Given me. For those you have chosen. For they're yours. Now, again, who is them? Well, he tells us it's not the world. It's not for those who have not believed. He says, I'm praying for the ones you've given me. The ones that already belong to you. I see who I'm praying for. Now, here's a couple of questions this brings up. Let me ask you a question. Does God plead with all sinners to repent? Yes, absolutely he does, of course. The gospel is open to everyone. Um, John 3.16, not John 14.7, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. The offer of salvation is extended to everyone. That's all, all obvious throughout the Bible. Now, here's another question. Does Jesus pray or ask the Father for the salvation of everyone? That's, that's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? So I like interesting questions. I like to think those things through. I'll give you a couple answers. By the way, when we answer questions, there's two ways to answer somebody's questions. You can answer how you think it ought to be, or you can, answer, you can open the Bible and answer it from the Bible. And sometimes the Bible ain't what I want it to be. Does that ever happen to y'all? There's always two ways to answer questions. This is how I think it ought to be, but when you really want to answer somebody's questions, you go to the Bible and say, let me find scriptures in here that back up what I want to say. Now, when I ask that question, does Jesus pray for the salvation of everyone? 
The only place I really have to go is John 17 because it's the only place where the veil was pulled back and I get to see Jesus pray and hear what he said, right? Now, he prayed a lot of times that I didn't get to hear, but the only, only scripture I have is today's passage. So, I'll give you a couple answers to that question. From a theological standpoint, I would say this. Doesn't Jesus always pray... By the way, does Jesus always pray according to the Father's will? Absolutely. He's in perfect accordance with the Father. He knows what the Father wants. He always prays according to the Father's will. By the way, that's why Jesus' prayers, they get answered, don't they? Now worry about his, his prayers getting answered. And by the way, the Father's will is to save those whom he's chosen. Would we agree? Okay. But the other answer to that question is given us right here in today's passage. Jesus says, again, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. They're the ones you chose. Those are the ones that I'm praying for. You see, he prays for the elect. He prays for the chosen. Now, again, of course he has a concern for the lost. Of course... He, 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 he loves those who hate Him. He loves those who rebel. He wants men and women to be forgiven. But the Bible says pretty clearly that He intercedes directly to the Father only for those whom the Father has given Him. Again, it might not be the way I want it. I'm just telling you that's what the Bible says. Again, this is a staggering reality when you really think about it and also very humbling for us because listen what causes me to be in that group that he prays for ain't got nothing to do with me don't mean I'm better than you don't mean I'm there's, it's got nothing to do with me it's, it's purely and only the grace of God he made that decision and I make no contribution to it whatso, uh, whatsoever okay Questions, comments? Let's pray. Father, thank you as we always do for John 17 uh, and for all of